1996 film, Jerry Maguire, played by Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, at the conclusion of the movie, bursts into uh, his wife's kind of little gossip session, played by Renee Zellweger. You guys are probably familiar with this scene, most of you. It's one of the most romantic in all of the history of film, I think. And he, he comes in and he gives her this wonderfully long speech and he says finally to her, you complete me. And she melts and she says, shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. And you know, at that point, if you're a lady, you're usually crying, and if you're a guy, you're pretending like you're not. Melt your heart. It's wonderful sentiment. You complete me. But is it true? Do you need someone else to complete you? In our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're there again. Paul is going to argue to the contrary, that you do not need someone else to complete you. It's going to be the same main idea that we've had the past few weeks, and we'll have again next week as we've kind of uh, nestled down into chapter 7. It was supposed to be a one-week deal, but uh, now we spent the last two weeks talking about uh, sex inside of marriage, marriage and divorce and remarriage, and this week we're going to turn our attention to singleness. And so our main idea is to, that Christians can honor God in both marriage and singleness. And we're going to look at singleness, God honoring singleness in three parts, that we can honor God in our singleness through celibacy, through our contentment and commitment to Christ, and then lastly, in our engagement with community. We're going to pray together, and then give some background again, and we'll get started. Um, let's, let's pray. And would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you've been reading through chapter 7, uh, or you've been with us, you know that one of the first questions that we are going to want to ask is, is this passage of Scripture inspired? Is it the Word of God? Because there are a variety of points at which Paul says, the Lord says this, but I say this. The Lord doesn't give a command, but I say this. And the answer to that question is that yes, it is inspired. It's all the Word of God. Paul isn't being carried along and inspired by the Holy Spirit one second and then poof, just no inspiration the next. When he uses the phrase, the Lord says, he's simply saying Jesus says. The Lord is a title to, that he uses to refer to Jesus throughout his writings, and he uses that same title here in Corinthians. And he's saying, Jesus in his earthly ministry addressed this particular topic, this specific situation, this way. But he hasn't addressed this particular situation. And so now I'm turning my attention to that, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit by the word of the Holy Spirit. 
And so he wants to be careful, as you might imagine the early church was. They, they want to be very careful to delineate between what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry and what he is teaching now through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so the whole chapter is God's Word, and we are to submit to it. The second thing that I've been drawing your attention to uh, during our stay in 1 Corinthians 7 is that as messed up as the Corinthians are, they're almost as messed up as we are, as messed up as they are, they get this thing right. They ask Paul about the matters that they're not sure about. And one of the things he's responding to that kind of uh, gives rise to what Paul writes in this chapter is seen in verse 1 of chapter 7. Uh, he says, now in response to the matters about which you wrote, and then you see the, the quotation marks there, this is a Corinthian saying, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, or if you have a more literal translation, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And so Paul is addressing these matters to them. They, they've brought this question to Paul, and so I've used this to beat my drum, which I, I say this all the time to you, that Christianity is personal. It's about a relationship with God. But it is never, ever private. There are aspects of your life that you might never have imagined that God would want to speak into, but He does. And His Word wants to mold you into His image. wants to make you holy. There's not in any area of all of creation, there's not any area of your life over which God does not declare mine. It's all His. And so, He even has something to say to you in regards to matters of sexuality. God cares about what you do in your bedroom or what you don't do. And so Paul actually um, hangs uh, chapter 7, verse 7, uh, over the whole chapter. It's a little, we kind of use it as a paradigm where he's going to say, uh, he's going to say this, I wish that all people were as I am, which is single, but each has his own gift from God. And one person has this gift and another has that. And he's talking about two gifts. They are singleness and marriage. And we've pointed out these are gifts of situation rather than capacity. So if you are currently single, you have the gift of singleness. Congratulations. If you're married, you currently have the gift of marriage. Enjoy. And so how he's responding to this question of sex and celibacy that exists among the Corinthians is that sex in marriage glorifies God and that celibacy outside of marriage glorifies God. Because what's happened is you have two extremes. You have the more hedonist kind of Corinthians on the one hand who are going, uh, and he addressed them at the end of chapter 6, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, I can only sin spiritually, so if it feels good, do it. And then on the other hand, you have the more ascetic group that are saying, if it feels good, definitely don't do it because it can't be holy. And Paul is saying, both of these ideas have merit. You can be holy in, in terms of having sex, but you need to be married. So if you're married, have sex, right? That was the first nine verses of chapter 7. He's saying if you're married, you need to have regular sexual intercourse. And you can only stop if you're going to fast and pray for a little while. But even then, you need to give up the fasting and praying and return to having regular sexual relationship with your spouse. Now on the other hand, he's saying, to you who are not married... You need to not have sex. The way you honor God in your singleness is through celibacy. And this is, again, going to be a little bit of review. But the reason for that is the Bible has a much 
more magnificent picture of marriage and sexuality than we do. Right? In the Bible, sex is not a consumer good, but a covenant good. And we said that the difference between a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship works a little bit like this. Uh, I love Amazon. I buy everything on there from diapers to diaper genies to wedding rings. You can even get food on there. Like, they have everything. It's awesome. Love Amazon. But the moment a retailer comes along that does things a little bit better than Amazon at a little bit better price, my relationship with Amazon will be over. I'm going to move on to them because in a consumer relationship, we say to whomever we're getting the product from, you adjust to me, you adjust to my needs. Whereas in a covenant relationship, our posture is we say, I will adjust to you. Right? A covenant is a declaration of future love. It's a declaration of future faithfulness, whereas in a consumer relationship, it's a declaration of present love of what's going on right now. In the covenant of marriage, when a husband and a wife come together, they are making promises to one another that are to endure throughout their lives. Promises that aren't merely meant to show the solidity, the security, and the safety of their marriage, but also meant to point to a reality that is far more profound than their marriage in the promises of God. The promise of God to bring His people into His family by uniting His people to His Son through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Promises of marriage show us about the promises of God, the covenant. It's inside that covenant of marriage it's inside those promises that sex takes place. And what sex is, is it's an acting out of the covenant. Sex is a, a parable of the gospel. It's the, the complete giving of one person to another. And the two people are made one at precisely the points where they are most different. God performs the miracle of marriage and makes a man and a woman one flesh. And this points us to the unity that we have with Christ. We are one with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The unity of, of, that we have in sexual activity inside of marriage shows us about the unity we have with Christ. Sex is a sign and a seal of the covenant of marriage, and its pleasures point us to the pleasures that we have with God. It points us to how we become one with somebody who's different than us. We become one with the God who is completely other than. And it is euphoric. It is delightful. And as, as good as sex inside of marriage is, it is bland tasting when set next to the, I don't know, what's a spicy dish or something that has a lot of taste to it, right? The, the taste that is to come when we are in heaven with Christ. It, it points to a 
reality that's far greater, far more profound than itself. In the same way, my wedding ring tells you that I'm married. It points to a more dynamic relationship, something way better than the ring itself. Your marriage and your sex within marriage points to a dynamic reality that is far more profound than your sex life itself. And so, when we take sex outside of marriage, we muddy the picture. God's given us marriage and sex to teach us about what He is like, to teach us about the gospel, wherein He has given Himself for us that we might know God. And so, in response to that, we give ourselves to Him completely, forever. He keeps His promises. So, our marriages are meant to to show how we, God has made promises to us, how he keeps those promises, and that he gives pleasure to us. He brings us delight and satisfaction and joy through our relationship with him. This is why God-honoring singleness is celibate singleness. We see this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. He says, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, he is referring to sexual self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn. Most of your translations add with desire there because of the context. I think that's true. But I also think that Paul left it ambiguous to say it's better to marry than to burn, uh, yes, with desire, but also than to burn in judgment, just in Uh, Chapter 6, verse 9, he said, Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Saying this is a serious matter. There are two alternatives. There is sex within marriage and celibacy outside of marriage if you want to honor God. Jesus concurs. I guess Paul concurs with Jesus. If you want to look back at Matthew 19 once more, we were there last week. I'll start reading in verse 3. Some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, the Pharisees asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If you want all the divorce and remarriage stuff, you can go back and listen. That was last week. This is this week now. Verse 10. His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man to his wife is like this, then it is better not to marry. Like, that's heavy stuff, Jesus. Together forever, one flesh. It might be better not to get married at all if there's no way out. And Jesus says, Exactly. Look at verse 11. He responded, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, 
There are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. Three kinds of eunuchs that Jesus identifies. A eunuch is simply a person that does not engage in sexual activity in this context. He identifies three kinds. There is a eunuch that is made that way from birth, and so there is a genital birth defect that would prevent that person from engaging in sexual activity. There is a second kind of eunuch who's been made that way by man, which just means somebody mutilated uh, their genitalia so that they can't have sex. Typically, uh, this was done via castration in terms of eunuchs that would serve in the palace of the king to prevent said eunuch from engaging in intercourse with the king's concubines. And then there's a third kind of eunuch, one that is that way by choice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think those who are single and following Christ, this is the category you fall into. Single in order to honor God for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so, God honoring singleness is celibate singleness in both the eyes of Paul and the eyes of Jesus. And what that means, if you are single, is that you have a little bit more extreme a battle on your hands than the married folks, right? We saw one of the benefits of marriage, I think it's verse 5 of chapter 7, is that you can have sex and that protects you from falling prey to sexual temptation. It's one of the reasons Paul says to do it regularly. He says, protect yourself from the temptations of the evil one by regularly sleeping with your spouse. It'll protect you from those sexual temptations. But if you're single, you have no such protection from those temptations. And so you need to set up guardrails in your life to protect you from sexual immorality to protect you from committing the Greek word for sexual immorality that's a blanket word that covers all of these things is porneia. It's the word from which we get pornography. And so you, you need to protect yourself from porneia, and a good place to start is by protecting yourself from pornography. Now, I don't, I don't like, particularly like talking about pornography, um, but the statistics show me that I need to. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar business. And the statistics bear out that often uh, religious people actually use pornography more than non-religious people. And that the vast majority of the people in this room have accessed pornography this week. And so single or married, stop it. Get help. Avoid sexual immorality. Get accountability for this. Find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust. Confess your sin. Bring it out into the light so that the sun can shrivel it up. So that you can do away with it. it. It will harm you. It will. Even if you're married, it, it, it will harm your marriage. It is not a good thing. It, it promotes sex trafficking. It, it promotes the kidnapping of young girls and boys. It is exploits. It, it turns sex on its head. 
supposed to be an act of self-giving, and it makes it all about taking. Also, if you are single and you are dating, you need to set boundaries so that pornea doesn't have fertile soil to grow in. And this will look different for different people. Maybe it means not being together after midnight for some. Uh, Maybe it means not being alone in a house. I, I don't know. But figure out, be smart. Figure out what it means for you to flee sexual immorality. That's at the end of chapter 6 too. What does it look like to flee from sexual immorality for you? The question is not, how close to the line can I get in terms of what I can do with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Can we, can we heavy pet? Can we, can we make out? Can we perform moral sex? Those are the wrong questions. The question isn't, what can I get away with? The question is, how can I most honor God? Right, that was the question of that section 12 through 20 at the end of chapter 6. How can I glorify God with my body? Flee sexual immorality, friends. Put these guardrails in your life. Love the purity of your girlfriend or boyfriend. Love your own purity. Love God more than your temporary satisfaction. Protect yourself singly. Set boundaries. And if neither of these works for you, then get married. That's what Paul says, right? Better to marry than to burn with passion. He says the, the, the same sediment in verse, I said verse 9, verse 28, he also gives us that sediment. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Same thing in verse 35. I'm saying this for your own benefit. He's talking about marriage and singleness, telling them to be single. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper. And when he says not to put a restraint on you, that is an idiom that when translated, it means not to put a restraint on you. But it was kind of like a saying that meant not to put a noose around your neck. And and Paul's saying, I'm not trying to uh, put a noose around your neck. I'm not trying to paint you into a corner and say, "If if you're single, you have to stay single forever and ever. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you can remain single and faithful and God-honoring, good. But if not, if you're tempted, if you choose to get married, that's a good choice too. Marriage and singleness are both okay. Like, situations change. If you're single, you might think, I have no intent on getting married. I'm never going to get married. But things change. It can happen. I mean, I've seen God do miraculous things. In college, I lived with a guy who trimmed his toenails by inserting his toes into his mouth and then gnawing on them. He also urinated in the sink, the kitchen sink. And I thought to myself, here is a guy that is never, ever getting married. Like, I can hardly live with him. Uh, He's married, happily, five years. I think, somewhere in that ballpark. So you might end up married. You, you, you never know. And Paul is saying that's okay. Whatever situation of life that you are in, you need to honor God right there. And if you're married, that means engaging in regular sexual activity. And if you're unmarried, it means abstaining. He says the same, has the same sediment in verses 36 through 38. Uh, this is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to translate. 
Uh, there's a lot of confusion. I'm going to read you what I think is a good translation of it and then tell you why it's difficult to translate. Okay? With me? All right, verse 36. If any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So then he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. Reason this is difficult, some of you are going, that's not what mine says at all. Mine has something about a father and a bride. Uh, I think maybe New King James leaves it a little ambiguous. King James might have father and bride. Uh, but the, the phrase that's um, difficult here is Parthenon altus, which just literally says his virgin. And so the question that interpreters have to ask is, whose virgin, right? Who does this pronoun stand in for? And so some have gone, based on context and everything that's around it, this is clearly a couple that is engaged to one another. It's a fiancé. The other people have said, this is a culture in which fathers give their daughters in marriage, arranged marriages. And so Paul's writing to fathers here, saying, if you want to give your daughter in marriage, that's great, but if not, don't give her. I think the fiancé uh, interpretation fits much better. That's where, where most commentators land and most of your Bible translations land now. Uh, th these are two people that are engaged, and Paul has just written, whatever life situation you're in, honor God within it. And so their question is, should we get married? Should we not get married? And Paul is saying, if you can stay single, hey, stay single. That works. It's good. But if you want to get married, you can get married. It's not, it's not sin. Marriage and singleness are both good gifts of God. There's nothing wrong with them. Singleness is not bad. It doesn't make you a second-class citizen. Though our culture might make you think that. Although if I could be more specific, culture would make you think not that singleness is bad, but that celibacy is bad, right? Even for your health. Like really, uh, contemporary America can't get its head around somebody who would be both single and not engaged in promiscuous activity. I think this is really well captured in, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of, I'm not endorsing, but the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin, uh, Steve Carell stars in it. But the whole, the whole premise of the movie is that Steve Carell is 40 years old, and he's a virgin. And that's ridiculous, preposterous. But if you're single and you're following Christ, that's the, the pattern of holiness that is laid out before you. I think, think culture wants us to think that our fulfillment and our identity are wrapped up in our sexuality. And so you can't be fully human unless you are engaging in sex. But that's, that's not what the Bible says. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus is the model for singleness. Jesus was more fully human than anybody that ever lived because he was sinless. He never engaged in sexual activity. You don't need to engage in sexual activity to be more fully human or to find your identity. Contrary to contemporary conceptions of identity, your sexuality does not define you. Sex is not ultimate unless you are worshiping at the altar of Aphrodite. And friends, Aphrodite has no mouth. She cannot 
speak. She has no ears, she cannot hear. She has no eyes, she cannot see. The idol of sexuality has no power to deliver you. It has no power to satisfy you deeply. Only Christ can do that. Only God can give you true satisfaction because He is the only true God. He's the only living God. He's the only God that delivers out of darkness and into light. Your identity is not found in your sexuality, but in your relationship with God. What what grips your heart is what you worship. And if sex is what's gripping your heart, you are worshiping it rather than God. And friends, that, that might seem right to you, but the end of that way is death. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right in the heart of a man, but its end is death. It might satisfy for a day, or even a few years, but in the long term, it will be unsatisfactory. It leads to death. If you're here, and you are um, someone who is a sexual sinner, married or single, I I want you to know that there is grace for you. God God loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. You need only turn from your sin and put your faith in him. A great speaker in Texas named Matt Chandler, some of you probably know him, some of you probably don't, there's a pretty famous illustration on this point, uh, and so I'm going to share it with you, and then later you can get on YouTube and Google Matt Chandler, The Rose, and get a better version of it. Uh, but basically, he took a friend of his whom he knew had been living in immorality with him to church one night. He'd been trying to get her to go to church with him for some time, and so he was really excited they were there. And then he saw the topic was, was purity, and he thought, wow, this is going to be really good. This is going to be great. She's going to hear the gospel, get saved. And then the, uh, the pastor begins to speak. And as part of his, um, I guess, talk on purity, he takes out a, a rose, a big old red rose, beautiful. And he, he says, all right, pass that around, pass that around, throws it out. And so people are passing it throughout his message and uh, touching it. You know how a flower would go through probably about 100 hands. And he says, at the end of the message, the, the man says, where's my rose? Where is it? Where is it? And they, they get it back to him, and it's like looking kind of dead like some of these ones. Uh, it, the petals are all falling off, and it, it looks pretty miserable. He says, and the man says, now who would want this? And his big point was, if you give up your purity outside of marriage, you're damaged goods. You are broken down like this, this withering rose. Who would want this? And Chandler says, it took all that was within me not to shout, Jesus wants the rose! If you are a sexual sinner, Jesus still wants you. He desires you. He loves you. He wants your heart. You need only turn from the idol of sex and put your faith in Him instead. Trust Him alone. Our God forgives. He's not looking to punish you. 
No, He came to earth to take the punishment for you. Because what your life has earned is death and wrath. But Jesus came and died in your place and took that wrath so that you don't have to. So that when you trust Him, you can enjoy fellowship with God. Next, God-honoring singleness is also content. Let's look at verses 29 through 32. Uh, Only going to give you passing comments on these because we're going to touch on them next week. But this is what he says. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world and its current form is passing away. Here's the point. He's telling those who are single, don't bind your hopes up with things that are going to pass away, things that are temporary rather than eternal. He's saying you don't need to be married to be made whole. You don't need to be married to be satisfied in this life. Instead, take your eyes off of that which is temporary, off of that which is passing away, and set them on that which endures forever. Verse 25 through 28. This is where Paul begins addressing singles more explicitly. Now about virgins, people that are unmarried, singles, I have no command from the Lord. But I do give an opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is faithful. Because of the present distress, and nobody really knows what this present distress is. I think perhaps the best suggestion is a famine that comes along in 51 AD. But something is is pretty wrong in Corinth. And it's going to influence how Paul writes here to singles. Um, But later he, he also talks about what's passing away. And so I think it applies to us since we are living in the last days technically. Uh, Scripture calls the last days that time between where Jesus ascended into heaven after dying on the cross and his return as the last days. And so we we live there. All of this is applicable. But because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. If you are single, listen, you have less troubles than married couples. It's just true. If you get married, it's going to be harder. And so let's say that the present crisis is a famine. Instead of having to worry about how you're going to feed yourself, you have to worry about how you're going to feed yourself and your wife and probably your kids. That's harder. It's more trouble. Or even if there were a fire in this room right now, you don't have to, you, if you're single, you just have to get you out. Just run for the door. But if you're married, you have to find your wife and perhaps your children. This should come as no surprise to us. Like your life, if you're single, is pretty hard as it is, just with one sinner. But let's say you get married and add another sinner to your life. You know what happens is two sinners, that that makes more sin, more trouble. And if you obey the first part of chapter 7, you're probably going to produce more little sinners that run around. 
It's going to get even harder. Trouble indeed. I mean, not to mention that when you first transition into marriage, it, it, for me anyhow, and I think most guys, it's always a shock how things change, right? You move from uh, being devoted to uh, playing video games most nights to vacuuming. Like, you move from those binge-watching Netflix to bedtime routine, right? Bath, book, bed, putting kids down. Your priorities change. And it makes it harder, right? Like, you, you learn weird things. Like, when I got married, I didn't know there was such a thing as a, a table skirt and a bed skirt and every other kind of skirt. <laughs> I know mini skirt, but <laughs> I didn't know these other categories. Like, when you're single, you can have, like, a little Coleman grill and eat off of that in your apartment, get all your stuff into, like, a book bag, be ready to go. You get married, your wife's like, you need a kitchen table. Why? What do we need a table for? No, you have to have a table. You learn what doilies are. Well, th- these things change. It makes life more complicated, more difficult as you live with somebody else that's also a sinner and is, is different than you. Singleness will have less troubles. So singles, be content in your singleness. Be content with less troubles. Let me tell you, they're the most miserable people on earth are married people. And what, what I mean by this it's not that all married people are miserable. I'm happily married. Don't, don't go, oh my gosh, this marriage is in trouble. No. The most miserable people on earth are married people because it's, it's much, when you're single, the only person that can make you miserable really is you. But if you are married, there are two people that can make you miserable, right? I'm hearing some amens, right? The, the Proverbs says it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a, cow, in a house with a quarrelsome wife. Right? There, there are less troubles if you are single. Secondly, singles are not divided in their devotion. They don't, they don't have to be. Look at verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Real quick, if you're single, does that describe you? You're worried about how you may please the Lord? Verse 33, But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If you are single, you can be singularly devoted to God. You can will one thing. Your whole life can be leveraged to the end of the glory of God. You don't have to be pulled in two different directions. Like, one of the truths is you can't do as much ministry-wise or, or really any direction of life when you are single, I'm sorry, when you are married as when you are single. You just have a greater capacity for flexibility and for friendship. You have more time as a single. Uh, old commentator Lightfoot, his last name said this, and I think captures the sentiment here really well. It says, Many a hero has been turned into a coward when he considers his widowed wife and his orphan children. And what he means by that is when you are single, you are free to kind of plunge into whatever endeavor God has called you to. 
You don't have to give thought to anyone else. But when you are married, you have to think about the other person. You have to consider how your actions are going to affect all those around you. As a single, you have less family responsibility and therefore a greater ability to serve. Are you using your singleness? And married people, this is for you too. I don't know if you know this or not, but most of us will spend most of our lives single. You'll spend your life single until you get married, and then if you don't die first and your spouse does, you will be single again. Most couples do not uh, drift into bliss as they get into bed at night and fall asleep holding hands, and then they die peacefully in their sleep. That's not, that's not how it goes. Usually one of you has to go on without the other. You will be single. You'll have an opportunity to use your singleness for the glory of God again. I love what uh, John Piper says in regards to having less responsibility and the ability to serve. He, he writes in his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, of Ruby and Laura. Well, let me read this to you, two single women. In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. One day as they were headed down a mountain, their brakes failed. The car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantaneously. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles? No, that is not tragedy. That is glory. These lives were not wasted. These lives were not lost. Jesus says in Mark 8, 35, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Friends, don't waste your life. Don't waste your singleness. Use it in singular devotion to the Lord. And though you might be single and have more free time because you have less family responsibility, I want you to know that you do not have less family. You are part of the family of God. You're part of a community. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, Jesus is teaching. Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those seated, seated in the circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. You are part of the family of God. And so you can protect yourself against those uh, single temptations to laziness and loneliness by pressing into and participating in the family of God. See, loving Jesus singularly, loving Jesus means 
loving Jesus singularly means loving his people corporately. Loving Jesus means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love John 13, 34 through 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so you see, the gospel comes with house keys. When you become a Christian, you belong to everyone else in this room. You get to be a part of their family. You're part of the family of God. You're not bound by blood, but by the Holy Spirit. And the bond of the Spirit is the thickest one there is. What does it look like as a single person to press into family life of other people in your church? It looks like inviting yourself over. It looks like being in other people's houses. And and if you're here and you're married, it looks like inviting single people into your life. Uh, Best example of this uh, I have, and I don't think he'll mind, uh, is is Josh Hicks. I'm going to use him as an example. He he comes to my house at at least once a week, usually twice, and he just hangs out with Chelsea and I and our kids. He understands that we've got uh, two kids of our own, two foster children, and and one on the way. He understands it can get a little bit crazy, and so he comes over to help out and hang out with our kids and share dinner with us, and if we're really lucky, sometimes he even helps put the kids down. I know y'all didn't know he had skill like that. But but he's, he's part of our lives. And there are some days, I think, when he comes into my house and he goes, hey, this is really cool, like kumbaya, everybody's hanging out, and he's holding Owen going, you know, maybe one day I can't wait till I have kids and get married. It's going to be great. And then there are other days he walks into my house and I think he probably thinks, oh my. Like, how long do I have to stay before it's rude for me to leave? <laughs> right? He's, he's seen the good sides of my marriage and he's seen not so good sides. And, and those, that relationship is, is mutually beneficial. He's serving us as a single and hopefully he's learning what to do and what not to do from us if he ever does end up married. But when we're sharing life together is the point here because the gospel comes with house keys and I wonder who's, who's welcome in your life like that that isn't a part of your nuclear family because this is the type of community that Christ has called us to. We really do need to get rid of the cult of the nuclear family. This is, this is the idea that we can live in isolation with our spouse and our kids and no one else. That's unhealthy. We need friends. We need community. We need each other. We need the church. Church, be hospitable. Press into the family, not born of blood, but born of the Holy Spirit of God. Know one another. Do life together. Be the church. Singleness is just as much a blessing and a gift as marriage. And Jesus is our model for it. So if you're single, be devoted to Jesus by loving his people. Jesus was so devoted to his people, so devoted to his church, that he laid down his life for her, died for his church, 
Jesus came and died so that we could have fellowship with Him, but not only with Him, also with one another. So it is no shame to give yourself entirely to the church as Christ did. Singleness is a good thing. It's a good thing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul's instruction in chapter 7 to us. Thank you that he teaches us, no matter what our situation is in life, we can honor you in it. If we are single, we can honor you by leveraging our lives towards you in total. And if we are married, we can leverage our marriages to the end of making your glory known as we hold out your promises of forgiveness and faithful love. God, we thank you that indeed the pleasures at your right hand are without end. We thank you that despite the fact that we are all sinners, that none of us are perfect, that you still love us and rescue us. We thank you that the order, the teaching of Christianity is not clean up your life and then have relationship with me. But you have said to us, I do not condemn you. You are accepted. Now go and sin no more. We thank you that we obey not in order to get from you, but because we've already received grace from you. Father, we, we just thank you for the joy of loving you back by obeying your precepts for our lives. And we ask that you would help to make our obedience heartfelt, that you would commit us to one another as you have committed yourselves to us. We thank you for the privilege of being bound together as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. It is a joy to be a part of the family of God, whether one is married or single. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.